According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in uh, Proverbs chapter 11 again. Proverbs chapter 11. Picking up where we left off last week. Looking at the interaction between personal wisdom and public wisdom. When the upright express their integrity in their business dealings and in everything, in every realm of life. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God to set aside distractions, asking for His faithfulness in our study of His truth today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness this hour, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you for Proverbs 11. Thank you for the entire book, Father, and the way that you bring it alive, the, the practical application you give in every single verse. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Proverbs chapter 11. Also, uh, looking ahead, by the way, just a quick announcement. Um, it looks like uh, schedule is marvelous for Wednesday mornings. <laughs> There's nothing coming up uh, as the holidays approach. Uh, it's Sundays that get affected this year with Christmas and New Year's and that. So I think on both of those days we'll have morning schedules only and not evening schedules on uh, December 25th or on January 1st. Um, uh, but otherwise, Wednesdays I think are all fine. So we'll keep the Wednesdays going and, and uh, keep Proverbs going. We pick up some folks on uh, holiday weeks when they get vacation time and they're off work and things like that. So we can appreciate that. All right, Proverbs chapter 11. And uh, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And this is uh, right off the bat an indicator that we're taking personal wisdom and we're making it public that there is an impact in our culture in our politics, in our business dealings, in our commerce, in our, in, in our justice system, and everything. Uh, we want to make sure that we're expressing the Word of God on, on a, uh, in this application in, uh, in our society, in our culture, we'll be blessed. We will bless the state of Texas. We will bless the city of Austin. We will bless the United States of America if uh, more and more of us live our lives according to the standard of the Word of God. And uh, we can appreciate that as well. All right. So in the outline, let me just zip through these points. We gave a context point in point one, showing how uh, the trends from chapter 10 carry over into chapter 11. Uh, under point two, how personal righteousness becomes public righteousness. The personally righteous individual personally living in God's wisdom will manifest a public integrity. And that's the nature of it. We can't enforce it top down. We have to nurture it bottom up. And it starts with the individual. Every individual in a local church that's growing in the Word of God is being personally transformed. And if you have a, a nucleus of that, if you have a concentration of that, what uh, Pastor Theme called the pivot, or there's other terms for it, but a concentration of believers being transformed like that has an incredible impact. And it doesn't take many. Ten righteous could have saved Sodom, for example. So how many does it take to save Jollyville or to save uh, Bee Caves or, or wherever you happen to live? have the impact that you have in your neighborhood, in your community. And uh, we can appreciate the way this works. It appears in our commercial transactions, or it doesn't. And we discussed this with the subpoints there under point three. 
the nature of an abomination versus the nature of favor or a delight. That contrast there, we're either pushing it away or we're hugging it, we're embracing it in, uh, in that dichotomy. The, the attitudes of pride versus humility that uh, underscore so much of what gets expressed. The underlying attitudes, this is in verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. And so we see the underlying attitudes uh, of uh, pride versus humility. They sit underneath those expressions of just or unjust commercial transactions. Point five then, and there's several subpoints under five, and and I reworked a couple of them. So um, before we move on to point six, we want to make sure we get the last, the D and the E out of uh, out of point five. So, um, and this is where we are. We're dealing with verse three. We're showing a parallel in verse five, and we have additional parallels as well in verse six uh, through eight. And so it's or verse 6 and verse 8. So uh, instead of giving those separate points uh, later on in point 7 or 8 or 9, went ahead and, and sh- uh, made them subpoints and shoved them back up uh, under point 5. So you'll see what we're dealing with here, all right? Um, the upright exhibit integrity, which serves to guide them in every circumstance. The corollary then, the contrast, is the treacherous exhibit crookedness, which serves to destroy them. It destroys them and destroys everyone around them. We have damage that gets done personally and societally in this as well. And it's not just verse 3. We get the first half, 3a, the second half, 3b, but then we find it restated again in verse 5. We're going to see it restated again in verse 6, restated again in verse 8. And as, it, as Solomon keeps pounding this point home again and again and again, we want to be able to just absorb it again and again and again. It's designed to be pounded in and pounded in. And the effect of, uh, you know, of, a, of a single punch might be one thing, but the effect of a dozen punches, you know, uh, all, you know, a, a boxing analogy here, being, uh, you know, a dozen punches to the same location in, in rapid fire format, that's going to leave a mark, okay? That's going to that's have an effect. And, uh, and we see this here. All right, so verse 3 says, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. And we can, uh, we can rejoice in this. We can be blessed by the fact that our integrity is a rule of thumb, that, we, that it's our guidance. It's like the pillar of fire by night or the cloud by day. It is guidance. And of course, it has to be guidance that's continually shaped by the Word of God. If we, uh, if we start to neglect our intake of truth, if we start to neglect church attendance, if, we, if our prayer life is diminished, if, if, if the first things, if we start to lose those, then this rule of thumb also goes away. You understand that? Personal wisdom becomes corrupted. Public wisdom becomes questionable. The attitude and the thinking starts to, starts to shift you understand. So in order for your own integrity, for your own uprightness, for your own character to be a rule of thumb, you've got to make sure that your character is constantly being nourished in the Word of God, constantly being shaped, being transformed in terms of what Romans 12 teaches, right? Otherwise, if it's not, then we are no different than the unbeliever out there just doing what they want to do, following their gut, following their instinct and whatever. And that's not what we're called to do. So um, I, I say this uh, in, in just with the word of caution and, uh, and, and because that's what the text says, that, that our integrity is a guide, okay? 
and I, and I realize that it's very subje- uh, subjective, and I realize there's some doctrinal pastors who wouldn't be comfortable with that. That well, you know, no, you can't you can't be guided by that. You've got to you've got to find a verse. Well, I just found a verse right there <laughs> that says my integrity is a guide to the upright, and and that um, we can be led by that. It's like being led by the Holy Spirit. It's like um, having your heart opened or having your heart closed. And there's, there are expressions whereby divine guidance is subjective. And I don't want to be scared of that. I don't want to run from that. Because I think it's a beautiful provision that God has made in His Word. Yes, it's subjective, but it's subjective in tandem with the objective Word of God going forth. In, in consistent study, in consistent living, in consistent prayer in, uh, in that application. So hopefully uh, that's clear as well. All right, it is a very brief poem, and, and, and we can appreciate that in the sub-points. I won't go back through this again, but uh, 17 words in the New American Standard Bible, when you count them out there in verse 3, uh, it's just six words in the Hebrew text. Six words. And the, the brevity of it get, makes it simple, makes it memorable, to those who memorize Hebrew, <laughs> okay? If you're not a Hebrew speaker, then that kind of ruins the, the, the memorability of it. But um, six basic words there about the uh, integrity of the upright will guide them, and uh, the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Three and three, all right? Three words for the integrity of the upright and uh, guiding them, and three words for the treachery of the, of the crooked uh, uh, destroying them, or the crookedness of the tre- uh, treachery if you will. All right, we talked about integrity, we talked about leading and guiding. Again, when, you, when you're dealing with Macha, you've got Exodus 13 as your illustration. There's the pillar of cloud, there's the fire, okay? Or Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does he do? He leads me beside still waters, okay? So uh, we, we're very familiar with the term, and it really becomes undeniable that Nacha is, is speaking of this of this guidance to lead and to guide, 39 Old Testament uses. Uh, Genesis uh, 24, when uh, Abraham's servant was counting on the Holy Spirit to guide him. He's got to go find a wife for his master, you know. And that's, uh, there's, a, there's a shopping assignment, you know. You tell your personal assistant, you know, to go to H-E-B and come back with some eggs or some milk, you know. Uh, go find a wife for my son, <laughs> okay. Wow, that's... Uh, That'd be intimidating, see. And I'm always intimidated when it comes to that because any mission I'm sent on, I'm I'm always going to buy the wrong thing. You would think it would be simple, you know. But you find when you get to the aisle, and that's a victory just finding the aisle, you get to the aisle uh, that has the item that your wife asked you to pick up and then all of a sudden now you're doomed because there's 50 brands, there's 30 sizes, there's, I mean, there's just any number of things. And whatever you bring back is going to be the wrong one because it has Splenda instead of NutraSweet or whatever. Um, so asking a personal assistant to go obtain a bride for your son, that's a heavy responsibility. And thankfully, he's a believer with doctrine. He's got a perspective. And he's making this a prayer uh, item step by step by step, every step of the way. And uh, there's patterns there that we had to follow in uh, different classes on divine guidance. All right. Now, the, point D, the immediate parallel to verse 3 is verse 5, where guidance is parallel to a smooth way. 
to a smooth way. And I think this is where we ran out of time. Am I correct? All right, then let's pick up right here. Verse 5 is parallel in the poetry, in the context, and uh, in addition to additional parallels in verse 6 and verse 8, so we'll see them under point E as well in in dealing with this. All right, so uh, let's look at verse 5. It says, uh, the righteous... Uh, uh, the righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. All right. And so it's clear we're dealing with with synonymous expressions. We're dealing with parallel concepts. Uh, In verse 3, it's upright. In verse uh, 5, it's blameless. But guess what? It's the same word. (laughs) It's translated upright. It's translated blameless, I think. In um, I was going to double check that before I misspeak this morning. In... uh, in this, in any event, Proverbs eleven three and five now. Okay, I am incorrect. It is tamim, and tamim is our integrity. Is our uh, that's yashar. Okay, in verse three. All right, glad I double checked that. I would have misspoken. I did misspeak. All right, the righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way. Now, guiding is one thing, smoothing the way is another thing, and and isn't it great to have them both together? To not only be guided, but to be guided on a smooth way. All right? And then uh, as far as being destroyed, the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Uh, The wicked will fall by his own wickedness. Obviously, there's a parallel to falling and being destroyed. And so we see it here. It's not the first time these concepts have come up. Back in chapter 3, you might recall, in chapter 3 we had the same uh, dichotomy. Chapter 3 and verse 6, as far as the smoothing of the way is concerned. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So do you want a rocky road or do you want a smooth road? Okay, well, it's up to you. It's up to you. Are you going to acknowledge Him? Are you going to seek His will? Are you going to trust in His guidance? Or are you going to pick out your own course? All right? And, uh, I mean, it's as plain as that. He will make your path straight. And if it doesn't seem straight, give it some time. (laughs) Rest and relax. All right? Uh, It may not seem straight. It may seem rocky. But He's still in charge of that. He may take you through the valley of the shadow of death. But when we get through the other side and you look back, you'll realize what a smooth way it truly was, even if it happened to have seemed rocky at the time. And uh, there's a perspective issue here that I think is, uh, is such that allows for us to, to walk by faith or that allows Satan then to scare us and to tempt us because he can lay things down there that look so smooth, they look so easy, they look so right, they look so great in contrast to the path God would have you on. And so if we're not acknowledging Him, if we're not seeking His wisdom, if we're not upright in these things, we might be tempted to take what seems to be the right way, and it's not. We find out that uh, it's got pitfalls along the way and the applications there. All right, so a smooth way. We'll see uh, more smooth uh, way promises in chapter 15. Proverbs 15 and verse 21. Folly is joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight. 
So again, you're living your life in the Word of God. There's the upright way or the smooth way or the straight way, as it's described there. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Look forward to getting to that. All right, Isaiah 45 and verse 13. Understand eschatologically, we have a, or uh, prophetically, we have a promise with respect to this. Isaiah 45, 13. Remember, this was the call of John the Baptist. Isaiah 45. And let's see, the context backs up then to verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. Remember, this chapter contrasts the true God with these fallen angels, with these posers, these demons that act like they're God, but they can't tell the end from the beginning. They cannot accurately predict the future or declare the end times as God does. So he says, I'll tell you about the things to come. I'll give you all the detail you want to know. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. I ordained all their host. I uh, have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. You see, and so we have a, a marvelous tandem here. Yes, there's guidance, but that guidance goes hand in hand with the smoothing of the way. He's not just pointing the way, saying, go there. He's going in front. He's leading the way. He's saying, follow me. And in providing that guidance, what does he leave behind him? A smooth way, right? It's, it's straight, it's smooth, it's level, it's, it's, um, it's blessed. It's, it's the way you want to go. All right. And then, of course... Um, we have uh, the role of John the Baptist. We have the role of, of, uh, of, of proclaiming his ways and preaching and making his ways straight and, and everything that the forerunner does in anticipation of the coming Christ. Concepts, I think, that are linked to what we're looking at here and making the path straight. All right, point E, more parallels. More parallels to verses 3 and 5. Continue in verses 6 and 8. So you'll notice verse 6 and verse 8. Again, seem to be saying the same thing over and over again, just with different words and slightly different connections. Verse 6, the righteousness of the upright will deliver them. Is there really that much of a difference between guiding and delivering? Could they not be synonymous? Could they not be the same thing happening at the same time? But the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. Okay, so again, parallelism. They're, are they destroyed? Are they falling? Are they caught? Okay, all of these are similar expressions, but they're being used in, uh, in these uh, parallel ways. Uh, verse 8, the righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. <laughs> Here's a fun illustration. So more illustrations. Again, choose you this day which walk you want to walk. Do you want to walk the walk of the upright? Do you want to walk the walk of the wicked? Walk the walk of the righteous or the, the walk of the unrighteous? See, the treacherous or any of these expressions that are being used here. And it's laid before the believer. Remember, in the, in the parental wisdom, the, the father was exhorting the son, you know, do this, do this. In personal and public wisdom, 
It's left to the volitional application of the mature man, the mature woman. The believer is not under the parental authority. They're, they're on their own as unto the Lord. And they're walking this walk in the earth as before the Lord with our assignment, right? We're to model God. We're to image God. We're in the image of God. And how are we walking? Are we walking according to God's wisdom or according to the world's wisdom? And, uh, and, and so laying these things out here in a, this hand and other hand contrast is, in, in my mind, it's just a beautiful thing saying, here it is. Pick which one you, you want to do, <laughs> okay? And it's kind of a no-brainer when you're in fellowship. It's, it's obvious, well, yeah, we want to live the Word of God thing is sin comes in and we stop thinking right and we stop cycling the truth and we start looking at that way of wickedness and uh, we make the dumb choices that we make this promise too about uh, the wicked taking his place this comes out in a lot of different ways haman is the greatest example of this but how uh, how is it that god um you know god is not just simply um a uh, he, he's not a referee on a football field all right? He's not just throwing flags. He's not just saying, all right, you, you're living right. All right, you're living wrong. And, and assigning consequences either way. I mean, yes, that's happening. But more than that, not only is that happening, but God very graciously and judiciously applies his judgments in ways uh, as object lessons, as ways to teach others, as ways to cause others to not, uh, to not uh, fall in that uh, same example. So in the book of Esther, we see this. Esther chapter 7, and um, I'm going the wrong way. When's the last time I turned to Esther? Before Job, before Psalms. Esther 7. If you're familiar with the story, uh, Haman is a bad guy, okay? Haman's a villain, and uh, he's got a plan to uh, exterminate the Jews. He's he's furious over the perceived insults, and he's just he he, he hates Mordecai. And uh, clearly, if you uh, if you hate somebody, then a great solution is just to uh, exterminate the entire race of the person that you hate. <laughs> All right, that's 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 satanic okay that's not that's not even human anger that's not even human hatred at that point that's just purely a demonic satanic hatred of the jewish people expressed through uh haman and so haman has a grand plan with some gallows and he ends up the tables get turned because of the faith uh, of esther here or through the faith of esther here and uh, thankfully the lord is so gracious in using the terms uh, the, the the tools that he uses and um, and all of this anyway we get to uh, chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 and um, the consequence on this harbona one of the eunuchs who were before the king said behold indeed the gallows now, let me back up verse 7 the king arose do i want to back up all the way to the chapter no <laughs> do you know the story i can i can skip through this all right uh, so verse 8, when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he even assault the queen with me in the king's house, in the house? As the word went out to the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, behold indeed the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Those are some high gallows. 
Okay? And, and if gallows is the right translation or not, if, if it was a stake, that might be a better uh, a rendering. Uh, the Persians were good at this. Uh, the Romans then adapted it in, in their crucifixion method. But um, rather than piercing the hands and the feet, the, the Persians like to just create a, a, a huge stake and impale the person on the stake and uh, right through the gut, and then they sl- would slide down. And, and 50 cubits is a long way to slide um, as gravity works that uh, in any event. Uh, but these are the ones that he built. He built these for Mordecai. And this is what he's done. Is this is the, the, the wicked falling into their own pit, the wickedness falling into their own plans, and taking the place of the righteous. The righteous is saved, the righteous is delivered, and the wicked end up experiencing what they had designed for the righteous. And so here's our illustration. And there's more. There's other illustrations, but uh, anyway, this one's pretty explicit and pretty easy to find. Um, so uh, Harbona says, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. <laughs> Okay, coincidence? No. They happen to be there. Make it happen. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. So the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai. Here is the iniquity of the, of the wicked, right? Here's what we're dealing with in Proverbs 11. And the righteous is being delivered. The righteous is being delivered from trouble, but the wicked take his place. And uh, you think about the God of justice and you think about what he does when he designs for these events, when he uses these events on an instructional basis to be able to teach others. It becomes a lesson then that believers can use to teach others. All right. Keeping in mind, of course, he's not obligated to do this every single time, but he does this frequently enough, I think, in not only in the scripture, but in our experience. We observe this frequently enough whereby um, we may even have illustrations in our own life, in our own families, in, in other situations there. See, different ways. All right. Um, I was also thinking of, of the uh, the lion's den, right? What happened when uh, Shadrach, uh, uh, when uh, Daniel was brought out of the lion's den? Well, the, the wicked accusers were thrown into the lion's den, and so they took his place. And uh, so you can't say that the lions weren't hungry because... The, they didn't even reach the bottom of the den, but they, when they were all devoured and, and, and destroyed in, in that judgment. The lions were starving. Yeah, but God obviously rescued Daniel, and the wicked took his place. Another illustration there in the fulfillment. Um, Pharaoh's armies chasing Israel. Well, uh, Pharaoh wanted to destroy them, and his armies took their place you know, at the bottom of the Red Sea, right? More illustrations like that as well. Um, so, looking at this and looking at this pattern and you ask the question, well, it hasn't happened yet, so uh, why not? (laughs) I understand these are principles. Are are these laws? Are these promises? Does it have to happen without exception every single time? Of course not. But it often happens. It can happen. It's It's a characteristic of walking in wisdom versus walking in wickedness. All right, so now we can move on to point six. As was highlighted in chapter 10, the eternal profit and loss statement is the only one that matters. We have a slide that may look familiar to you. 
with some verses that you may be familiar with because we looked at them in chapter 10. But when you look at verse 4 and you realize uh, we have the same principle we already studied in in chapter 10, then uh, you're reminded that it's uh, uh, the nature of Proverbs to repeat these things over and over and over again. We're going to see it again. So Proverbs 10.2, Proverbs 11.4. What's the principle we have there in that fourth verse? Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And so if you think your money can bail you out of your problems, if you think money can buy eternal life or money can solve issues, think again. It's the eternal profit and loss statement. It's the righteousness we have in Christ that positionally delivers us, that experientially delivers us in every way imaginable. Don't confuse earthly money with heavenly money. <laughs> and don't, uh, don't confuse those issues whatsoever. If, uh, if earthly currency has become your, uh, your God, and that's what you're trusting in, and that's what you're banking on, then uh, reevaluate, all right? Because that's a, that's a horrible idol. You cannot serve God and mammon, and that idol will let you down. And, uh, and God's wrath will come upon you in uh, putting that idol before him. All right, I don't know that we need to spend a ton of time on this because I thought we did so real well back in chapter 10. Uh, chapter 10 and verse 2 says, Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. And just in the language itself, you realize we got some terminology here. We got a, I mean, how can gains not profit? <laughs> you know, a gain is a profit. And so we realize that the language of the text is causing us to think in, in multiple spectrums, the earthly spectrum and the heavenly spectrum. That I can have gain, but it doesn't profit because it's an ill-gotten gain. And the profit that it doesn't produce is the spiritual profit, the eternal profit. And yeah, you can, you can steal cash and have earthly gains, but there's no, I mean, it's, it's all just earthly. There's no spiritual profit to it. There's no eternal profit to it. It goes on to say in Proverbs 10 too, but righteousness delivers from death. And uh, again, this is what we have in the Word of God, not only positionally, but experientially in, uh, in the different things. Um, there it is. Uh, we've already read Proverbs 11.4. Riches do not profit on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. 1 Samuel 12.21, you remember these? 1 Samuel 12 and verse 21. And uh, they're getting what they wanted. They're getting the king. Wow, isn't that great? And um, verse 19, All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You see, and even though they realize their mistake, what's the answer now? The answer now is you can't undo your mistake. You can't un- go back and undo what you've done. So you've done, you done what you've done, and, and now here we are. So let's make better decisions moving forward, and let's see what God's going to do now. So do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things, which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. 
And I think it's interesting because they're already kind of on that path, right? They've already stepped from the, the pure theocracy they had to now, they're, now they've got a king and now they're on a path. They've got to, they've got to be on their guard. They've got to be on their guard. This, this contrast of the eternal with the temporal is going to be tougher for them because now they've got a human being to look at. <laughs> and they could be happy with, with him or mad at him or whatever. And, uh, you know, before this... They didn't have a, a human being king to look at, and they, they were as a theocracy with their with their priests and with their judges and so forth. Well, you must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. And what a contrast. All right, when it comes to our wealth, when it comes to our riches and what it is that we're banking on, is it eternal or is it futile? Which cannot profit or deliver. Uh, Psalm 49. Psalm 49. And don't know I'm going to read the whole psalm to you this morning, but I could. Here it is. Verses 1 through 20. And... Um, Look who it's addressed to. Give ear, get, uh, hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. Everybody needs this message. My mouth will speak wisdom. Um, the meditation of my heart will be understanding. Um, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity? When the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth. You know anybody like that? And boast in the abundance of their riches. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. That he should live on eternally. That he should not undergo decay. So we have this. We've got this contrast between those that are trusting in riches and those that are trusting in the Lord. And the fact that riches can't buy redemption, our Lord does buy redemption. Who do we want to be trusting in? We want to be trusting in the Lord. And uh, trusting in Him to deliver. So the one that provides eternally is the one we want to trust in temporally. Why am I going to bank on... Why am I going to bank on my money temporally when I can't bank on my money eternally, right? I mean, really, this is fundamentally the same message in Galatians. If, if you're saved by grace through faith, why are you going to walk by, by law or human effort? If, if money can't save you, why, is, why do you think money will save you temporally in, in experience? Okay? It's the same corollary between the eternal and the temporal. And so... Um, you know, they think that they can live on. They think that their money is an answer. Even wise men die. Even uh, those that use their wisdom to accumulate great wealth, where are they going to end up? Just as dead as the poorest guy ends up, right? The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. You're not taking it with you. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever. And their dwelling places to all generations. And they have called their lands after their own names. See, this is how insane they get and how through the extent that they take it. That, that, that through money they can create a pseudo-eternal life. That, that they can live on forever in the, the legacy they leave behind, in the heritage they leave behind, in the 
children, the descendants, the uh, the things that are named after them. And uh, you know, if there's enough places named after you, and enough name, uh, bridges and buildings and parks and and whatever else, is that a, is that a form of immortality? You know, well, perhaps in a twisted, carnal kind of way that uh, the the unregenerate mind or uh, thinks in those terms. And so, uh, yeah. All right, so I grew up in the state of Washington, named after George Washington. Well, what was it called before that? <laughs> and it was called Oregon before that, yuck. Well, uh, and what was it called before it was called Oregon? You know, what did the Indians call it? The Native Americans, what did they call it? And uh, what's it going to be called when it's not called Washington anymore? Because after all, he was a slave owner, and there's a whole crowd out there that wants to just rename everything if uh, the person ever owned a slave, so let's let's rename it, okay? Well, what's it going to be called after that? And uh, you know, you call things by a name. How long does that last? And is that really what form of eternal life is that? It's not like you get to enjoy it. You're long gone by the time something gets named after you. Anyway, their pomp. Man and his pomp will not endure. <laughs> he is like the beast that perishes. So anyway, we've got a whole um, contrast here. And and what can money save you from? And what it, where is your faith? The idea of pomp that we see in verse 12 carries through all the way to the end of the psalm. It ends it there in verse 20. Man and his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. So the distinction between humanity and the animal realm, obviously, um, we're the ones that Christ redeemed. We're the ones that get to live with Jesus Christ for all eternity. We're the ones who should be eternally focused in uh, in those things. All right, Luke 12, 15 through 21. Remember this one. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Amazing all the things that pastors are asked to get in the middle of and solve this and fix this and tell somebody this. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? (laughs) Am I the probate judge? What's going on here? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told him a parable, saying the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And and, um, as we discuss this, as we examine what God has blessed us with, productivity is a good thing, not a bad thing. And when God grants a land to become more productive, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And uh, profits are, uh, you know, excessive profits. What's that? <laughs> it's, you know, excessive profits. Excessive in whose perspective? How much is too much? And why do you say that? It's like excessive, uh, no one ever complains about, uh, about their wife being excessively beautiful or, uh, or uh, you know, somebody being excessively smart. You know, come on, he's too smart. Uh, or excessively whatever, you know. What's the, uh, how much is too much and why is an abundance? 
Why has God provided the abundance? What is his purpose for the increase? And so when this man goes off the rails, he goes off the rails because instead of reasoning to himself about um, how much more fruitful and generous and gracious can I be with this increase, it never crosses his mind that he now has an abundance to share with those in need and he has a greater abundance to share with a greater number of those in need. His whole thought is, I have more, I need to keep more. I have more, I need bigger barns in which to store them. And that's the only thing he can think about. What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Well, you know, um, well, how much do you plan on eating this year, right? You know, and, and what are you going to do with the excess? And, and, and does it even cross your mind that, that there are things that can be done with the excess? So he said, this is what I will do. I will, tr- I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Now there's nothing wrong with expanding your capacity. This, is, this verse is not against uh, capitalism. This verse is not against uh, increasing in your capacity or, or building larger facilities or larger warehouses or any other thing. It comes down to the attitude behind it. If you're going to build a larger warehouse, understand why you're building a larger warehouse. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. All right, so if you are planning for retirement, what what is your retirement plan? If you're planning for 600 years of retirement, that may be a bit excessive. How many years do you plan on living after retirement? You know, (laughs) Um, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, there's nothing wrong with eating and drinking and being marrying or being merry when that's accompanied by the divine viewpoint perspective. See, with contentment, with the divine viewpoint perspective, we should enjoy what He's given us. God's given us all things to enjoy, but the enjoyment comes when we're like-minded with Him. It's not about the, uh, notice there's not a a shred of of vindication here that he's going to share it with anybody. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? We might rephrase that question. Who might you have shared it with prior to tonight? (laughs) Who, you know, uh, it's going to get shared now. It, it will get spread about now just without your participation, without your volition, without your joy, without your love. I mean, it's better to give than to receive. They're still going to receive, but you don't get the blessing of giving. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's the key. It's not about profits. It's not about wealth. It's not anti-capitalism. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. The only wrongness is when you're wealthy towards self and not towards God. You need to have both. And you can have that second one without the first one. You can be rich toward God and be poor as a, as a church mouse. See? But when you are rich as, as Midas or the, the Dives, the rich man, and, and, or, or you know whoever, pick out a rich guy. I don't want to pick on real rich guys because they might be saved. I don't know. But um, you could be as rich as the richest rich guy, saved rich guy on the planet, and if you're not rich towards God, what use is that? 
Finally then, um, 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. And you know, I mean, for those that God assigns to this capacity, thank the Lord for them. A lot of times uh, the prosperity test is, is a difficult test to pass. It's, and uh, I think, uh, what, what, you know, how, what a wreck would my life be if I won the lottery? Oh my, I don't even want to think about it. Okay, because I know my sin nature. I know my, oh my. So God has not tested me with that yet. He won't test me beyond what I'm able to bear. And he knows as well as I do, better than I do, what a train wreck that would be. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And right there is is all the doctrine you ever could need related to earthly funds, related to to all these things. Don't, uh, if you are rich, it's only in this present world, (laughs) so understand that context, understand the time frame there. It's this present world, which is passing away, along with it, it's lost. All right, this present world. And um, that, uh, you know, you may be rich in one domain, but what about the next domain? Uh, do you have treasure laid up there yet? And, uh, and aspects, you know, it's, when, you, when, you, when you transfer from one economy to another economy, you find out very quickly, ooh, I'm not as well off as I thought I was. <laughs> okay, you know, when I was a kid and I had a paper route, it was a pretty good economy. I was making some pretty good money, you know, for a 10-year-old. I was liking it. And if I wanted to go see a movie, I went and saw a movie. I had, you know, I had a pretty good economy going. I was making some good money. Well, yeah, I wasn't paying rent. I wasn't paying, you know, taxes. I didn't have, uh, you know, uh, food. You know, mom was cooking and things were great. You know, you get you you transfer from one economy like a, a sheltered childhood economy under your parents' roof, and then you get out on your own. You got a efficiency on infield or somewhere, right? <laughs> I don't know if my daughter will ever, ever hear this or not, but if she's listening, I love you. Um, but you get out on your own, and now what do you got? You got rent. You got utilities. You got you got you got to eat. You got food. I mean, there's. The economy is entirely different, and you realize, okay, time to step it up, <laughs> right? And but think about from earth to heaven. There's an infinite disparity there, as the heavens are higher than the earth, and uh, we're going from one economy to the next. In this, if you're rich in this present world, well, it means nothing in heaven. It means less than nothing. It's absolutely useless in heaven. And then, not to be conceited. The tragedy of wealth is that um, built in, we saw this this morning in, uh, uh, in, the, in the training class in, in our men's fellowship time, uh, Satan in, and in his fall in Ezekiel 28, the abundance of his trade and the, uh, the, the wealth that he accumulated, the riches there, and it, he corrupted his wisdom by reason of his splendor. And he, he was internally filled with violence and he sinned. And, and we can become conceited with wealth. And you start to feel like you have earned it. You have deserved it. And oh, aren't I great? And smart me. And uh, stupid them. And, uh, you know, and, and you start to feel superior to people that don't have that. There's no place for that. Uh, you, you're not where you are because you put yourself there. 
the self-made man and all the rest. No, God blessed you. And uh, God put you where God wants you. So don't be conceited and don't fix your hope. That's fundamentally Proverbs 11.4. Don't fix your hope on your wealth because it's so uncertain, on the uncertainty of riches. If you're trusting in your wealth, it's going to let you down. Keep your faith in God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, within the capacity of what he gives us, who gave it to us? God did. Why? To enjoy it. The capacity to enjoy it. To enjoy it on the basis of who it came from. Aren't gifts more special if they come from someone special? If God is the one that gives us everything, and if we acknowledge him in grace for giving us everything, that every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift comes down from above, from the, God of, uh, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And so I can appreciate it, not because it is what it is, but because of who gave it to me, and why he gave it to me, and the fellowship I have in receiving what he gave, and thanking him for it, and fellowshipping in it, and using it appropriately to be generous, to be rich in good works. See, first of all, I'm going to enjoy it. And what will give me the enjoyment? What gives me the enjoyment? Hoarding it to myself? Scarfing it all down? What gives me the enjoyment? Sharing it with others? Celebrating what a great father I have? What a great God I have? So to be, uh, it says, uh, instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. If God has extended material blessings to you, the purpose is not to hoard it, but to be ready to share, to be generous, to make use of it, to share and celebrate the thankfulness, the rejoicing, the praise. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. This is where you get your return on your investment. How do, you, how do you make that deposit in the heavenly places? Where's the, where's the uh, branch location that I go to in order to turn in a deposit? Well, it's right here in the body of Christ. It's one another. It's pouring ourselves into one another. It's, the, it's to be good, and uh, it's the doing good and sharing that we've been studying in Galatians chapter 6. And in so doing, you are storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. You want to make heavenly deposits? It happens right here as we do good and share with one another in the body of Christ. This is the good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You know, we talk about our children and building a nest egg and savings and things and what do they have uh, to start with? What do they have when they leave home? What do they have when they start their marriages? What do they have? And, 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 and that's all fine and good, but that's only an illustration of what will they have on day one of eternity. What is the nest egg that they're laying up for eternity? That's, uh, that's the real issue. All right, then uh, back to Proverbs 11. All that came out of verse 4, by the way. Did you notice we backed up to verse 4? Because we'd already covered verse 3, 5, 6, and 8. Now we've got to look at verse 7. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of strong men perishes. You know, death is the end. How sad is that? Well, not for us, <laughs> but it is the end for them and all of their plans. 
everything they had in in uh, design. Physical death ends every misplaced expectation and hope for the wicked. Physical death ends every misplaced expectation and hope for the wicked. Not so for us, see, although we can also have misplaced expectations and hope. Nevertheless, if we have God's expectation, if we have God's hope, if we're walking the walk we should be walking, death doesn't end it, death is the next step. We get to proceed from our temporal blessings to our eternal blessings, from our, te- from our temporal walk to our eternal walk. Not so for the unbeliever. His expectation will perish. It's kind of interesting to read what, uh, what people were planning when they died. Julius Caesar was, uh, was uh, preparing for an expedition into Parthia. And he had the funds arranged. He had the legions assembled. He, uh, the logistics were, were in place. He was ready to go forth. He had re- received mixed uh, uh, from his soothsayers. The, the um, messages were not auspicious. <laughs> All right, Beware the Ides of March. Uh, he, was, uh, he, he had some warnings that were steering him away from the Parthian campaign, but then he had some other warnings that led him to believe, no, this is, this is good. It's a good time to get out of town. <laughs> There's people that don't like me, so let's let's go to war. That's always good population improvement when you can, or uh, popularity improvement when you can come back with plunder and uh, and and make the masses happy. And uh, at the same time, the conspirators realized that if he did go on the Parthia campaign, then he would be out of their reach, and he'd be protected by the legions. And so there was a sense of urgency that they had also, uh, Brutus and those guys, to 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 plunge in the knife. And uh, so, uh, anyway, it's interesting. The, the things that people had planned that were on their desk when, uh, when, they're, found, when they're found dead or their, their uh, expectations. What it is they were going to do next weekend or, or what it is that they were going to do, see. Um, anyway, the, um, I think uh, it's neat, the, the book that Einstein had open on his desk when, when he was found slumped over, and, and it was uh, Velikovsky, Emmanuel Velikovsky, Worlds in Collision. And go, oh, I like that book. <laughs> I want to spend more time in that book. An unbeliever, of course, died and went to hell, but he had a, a Jewish perspective on the Old Testament, and he had the, the mind of a, of a historian and a linguist that just uh, gives me a lot of things to think about. All right, this is the idea contained within Bildad the Shuhite's primary message. And uh, Job chapter 8, and you say, well, who cares about Bildad? He was, he was uh, off target. He was wrong. Yeah, he was off target and he was wrong in blaming Job and accusing Job of things. But, uh, but Bildad, Bildad was not a dummy, and Bildad was, uh, had a perspective for God and a perspective for truth. There is wisdom to be found in all these arguments. Okay, so we start with uh, Eliphaz. The Temanite, he got a couple of chapters to tear into Job, and then Job got a couple of chapters to answer in chapters 6 and 7. And now Bildad gets his primary message. This is his first, uh, his prepared remarks. He came all the way from uh, wherever, the land of Shu. Um, We don't technically know, scholars think they know or they guess on, uh, on this. The shortest man in the Bible right there, right? Shuhite. All right. And Bildad shows up, and this is his argument. 
And as we see it, I guess picking up in verse 11, um, can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? You know, there's, there's the nature of these things. While it is still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish. And so he's, he's right in a way. He's right in his wisdom that, that conforms to Proverbs. He's just wrong in assigning wickedness to Job and in, in urging Job to get on the right path. But still, uh, look what he addresses here. Uh, the hope of the godless will perish, whose confidence is fragile, whose trust a spider's web. <laughs> okay, So all your plans, all your expectations, all your hope is gone. You know, kill the spider, smash the web, and you can't even find it after that. It no longer exists. He trusts in his house, but it does not stand, and holds fast to it, but it does not endure. He thrives before the sun, and his shoots spread out over his garden. His roots wrap around a rock pile. He grasps a house of stone. He is removed from his place. Then it will deny him, saying, I never saw you. You know, this house that you built, and after you're gone, the, the land doesn't even know who you are. The land doesn't care. The land has a new owner. Somebody else lives on that house now. Anyway, behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the dust others will spring. You know, who lives in your house after you're dead? And then, lo, here's the call telling Job he's got to repent. God will not reject a man of integrity nor will he support the evildoers. So we have the, the clothing here telling Job he's got to repent, he's got to straighten up. All right, well, this uh, wraps up what we have for today. We'll build on this next week, Lord willing, rapture pending. We'll get more detail out of Proverbs 11. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this day. Thank you for all your truth. Rejoicing, Father, in how practical these things can get. Proverbs, uh, in a lot of ways, Father, just they practically preach themselves. They're self-explanatory, they're self-contained, they're short, they're pithy. Uh, when we're walking in the light in fellowship, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer, Father. We look at it and go, well, yeah. Uh, but Father, help us to, uh, to be humble before this material and to compare Scripture to Scripture, to try to see a, a bigger perspective on things, to demonstrate a church-age uh, perspective above and beyond the uh, Israel perspective. Father, uh, continue to make this Proverbs class a blessing for each one of us. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen.